This is Jason Dennington from the Nonprofit Hour Show by the Media Institute for Social Change. On our show on Monday, November 16th, we featured the HHH Foundation and Notes of Hope with our guests Becky Bronstein and Jenny Conley. The Notes of Hope event was a benefit concert that was held the previous Friday, and it featured music and storytellers to benefit the HHH Foundation in memory of Hugh Housen and Bethany Hartung. It's an organization that raises money for the OHSU Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Program. As part of that Nonprofit Hour show, we featured some of the music and storytellers that were part of the live event at the Alberta Rose Theatre. There were so many great performances that night, however, it became difficult to actually narrow down a selection that had to fit into the show. So we decided to include all of the full and unedited performances here on our SoundCloud page. Please be aware that in some circumstances, unedited does mean that there may be language that we were unable to include in our broadcast on air. For myself, one of the most meaningful parts of attending the event was hearing the storytellers share their experiences with the audience. Here is one of those storytellers now, Brian Sabin. That brings us to our final storyteller of the evening. She is incredible. She is captivating. She's funny. She's a lot of things. You guys, seriously, it's going to be amazing. I'm very, very, very proud to present our final storyteller of the evening, Bree Sabin. <laughs> Before my bone marrow shut down, I knew everything about being a cancer patient because you see, I watch a lot of TV and movies and read a ton of books. Yes, I was duped by tropes. So when cancer came knocking on my door, I expected to be in treatment for about a year. It's going to be kind of uncomfortable. I'd feel tired and lousy. But my boyfriend would step up and he would be that emotional strength that we would both need to carry through. Of course, I had no idea at that time that I had two cancers that would take hmm, three, three and a half years to get through, that uh, tired and lousy was just scratching the surface. And in fact, I would feel terrible all the time. I would have bathroom stories that would range from horrifying to hilarious. I had no idea that my boyfriend could crumble under the weight of taking care of me. And I certainly didn't know that my family would rally and be my strength. I met Ross through mutual friends. We would meet up at bars and parties, chat up each other. It was pretty nice. He's a really interesting guy, um, both super nerdy IT computer genius and also an avid surfer. Uh, he loved video games and drinking bourbon, eating cheap sushi, and taking these long walks around downtown. In fact, he took me to the best great in the city. It's right over this little window well downtown, uh, just up, uh, above a basement bakery. And if you stand there at just the right time, you are, are enveloped in a beautiful column of cinnamon roll smells. 
After a while, we moved in together. We went to the farmer's market a lot, bought weird meat and produce, took it home to learn how to cook it. I was about 26 at that time and had been home for just a few years from college. Um, Wasn't particularly close to my family at that time. There was a lot of old drama that was kind of still mending. And I didn't have a very established friend base back home. It was really just the group of friends where I had met Ross. A lot of us had known each other since high school. And we were all sort of trickling back from college or trying to make it in New York City or L.A. Some months into our relationship, though, I felt like my body was starting to shut down. I was getting these staph infections all over my arms, legs, sometimes on my face, the kind of staph that's really hard to take care of with antibiotics. And then I was getting tired all the time. At first, I attributed it to the fact that I was working 50 to 60 hours a week as a barista and a bartender, but that didn't make sense because I had been working those kind of hours since I was 16 years old. But what really sent me over the edge was the fact that HPV that I had caught at 19 and thought had gone away had come back, and it came back with a vengeance. What started as a couple of little bumps that I thought would go away turned into a continental map of pain and anguish all over my lady parts. This, of course, drove me to see a doctor. Twelve doctors and three skin biopsies later, I finally found myself in the office of a gynecological oncologist. Try saying that three times fast. That means Lady Parts Cancer Doctor. Lady Parts Cancer Doctor decided that the best route for me was to have a laser surgery and remove all that bad tissue because it was starting to turn into vulvar cancer. Now, vulvar cancer doesn't sound that scary. It's on the outside. It's not on the inside. You can take it off with surgery. Day of surgery, two weeks, and you're back in the game. Uh, I would be back in the saddle at work and then be able to enjoy the physical side of my new relationship. Sounded like a great idea. Of course... The way things go, this would not be a story if that was it. Uh, Five days I spent hospitalized, bleeding and bleeding and bleeding until I reached a near-fatal point of blood loss and had to have some transfusions. This was not normal for this kind of procedure. So they did a bone marrow biopsy, and it came back positive for myelodysplastic syndrome. This is a condition that is in the leukemia family, common for elderly people and people who have had cancer treatment before. Not me. Myelodysplastic syndrome, or MDS, uh, left untreated, turns into acute myeloid leukemia, which is notoriously difficult to treat. Ross's demeanor at the start was that of the benevolent android, kind of like Data from Star Trek. He had all the trappings of humanity and concern, but kept all the actual human feelings at arm's reach. I believe that he truly wanted to be my white knight. He wanted us to rise triumphant from the fires of the battle against cancer, and we would raise our hands together, bonded forever, because we fought it off together. Now, unfortunately, Ross is a stress case. He has a hard time managing difficult emotions, and his narrative began to crumble pretty quickly. It didn't take long for my doctor to ask him to stop coming to oncology appointments because he could not stop making jokes every time he was uncomfortable. These early appointments, though, when you're having a lot of tests and going over all the possibilities, every other sentence out of your oncologist's mouth is uncomfortable. So a 15-minute appointment would turn into 45. 
He took this rejection by my oncologist very personally, and the switch flipped. He started to get very frustrated with me. Expected me, expected me to be the sunny optimist, a little bit tired, that he knew that I could be and that I have been in the past, but sometimes you just feel like shit. His short temper became hair trigger and resulted in a lot of confusing arguments where I couldn't figure out what he was upset about, but we definitely were yelling at each other. So when time came to put together a treatment plan with my oncologist, I took my mom. She and I had had kind of a slightly disengaged relationship since I was about 14. My parents' divorce had been a little bit sloppy, and I was still pretty young and didn't know how to deal with it. At that same time, my little brother was in elementary school, and he took the divorce really hard. Uh, He became withdrawn and angry and held on to that well into adulthood. My older brother had been away at college, so he didn't really have to deal with the daily drama and couldn't relate to what we were dealing with back at home. So when I stepped into adulthood at 18, I did so without the confidence that my family would have my back if shit ever went pear-shaped. But after years of growth and maturity and attempting to continue to have these relationships, uh, the pain of that time was abating. And I knew that if I was going to have to hear bad news, it was my mom's hand that I wanted to be able to hold. When my oncologist told us that I was going to have to have a bone marrow transplant in order to survive, her voice just turned into that teacher from Charlie Brown in my ear, and my vision cut out, and all I could think about is, how am I going to ask my little brother, who keeps us all at a distance, to harvest his marrow so that I can survive? So I'm going over in my head this script that I'm going to recite at dinner with him, And I let my mom ask the difficult questions, ask the technical questions, and take all the notes. So we're walking back to the car, back to the parking garage, and I see my mom tapping away on her phone. Now, mind you, this is the era of Candy Crush. And mom, I know you were a Candy Crush addict. Don't deny it. So I got a little mad. I mean, here she is poking around, matching, I don't know what you do in Candy Crush, match some candies together so they go away. This is a grave situation, so I kind of chastise her for it, and she tells me to relax and mind my own business. So we get in the car, and we're driving out of the parking garage, and all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up. Because, you know, as you leave the parking garage, all of a sudden you have new cell signal, and it's my little brother texting me. He says, hey, mom just told me what's going on. Don't worry, I'm going to be a perfect match. So I'm eating crow because my mom was most certainly not on Candy Crush. In fact, she relieved me of the burden of having to figure out what to say to my brother. And my brother, in turn, relieved me of the burden of having to ask. He stepped up. And he was right. He was a 100% HLA match. And he was my bone marrow donor and my hero. Now, two years of back-to-back surgery to keep the vulvar cancer at bay that had gone from stage one to stage two and creeping up on stage three just left me in this slog of exhaustion and pain and heavily medicated stupor. Meanwhile, Ross's frustration and natural pessimism were ramped up high. His temper became so explosive that a bad day at work for him resulted in being shouted at for hours for me. And there was this night where... 
he came home and I was stuck in bed because I had popped a suture and I was in too much pain and on too many drugs to really get out and do anything. And he just starts kicking the frame of my bed until it starts heaving and almost cracks with me in it. Another time he got so mad about I don't even know what that he shouted and headbutted my bedroom door, leaving a dent about this high, about six feet up. I got really tired of hearing him say things like, you don't need to be afraid of me, you need to be grateful. I would never really hit you. I couldn't see any more of this goofy, surfing, nerdy, taking long walks guy that I had fallen for in that pillar of bakery aroma. We had just become these two people who didn't know what to do with each other. I knew that I had to get out of there, that it wasn't healthy for us anymore but I didn't have the kind of friends that I could bunk with, and I was afraid of inflicting myself on my family because look what I had done to my boyfriend. Cancer had created this prison for me, and Ross was the warden that kept me behaving the way he expected. So I had my bone marrow transplant in Seattle. By then, I had been relying on my mom and my sister-in-law to accompany me to various appointments and procedures. We spent a lot of time in waiting rooms together and in exam rooms waiting to be seen. I got to know them better than I had known them before. It was a lot of fun, actually, uh, in between punctures in my lumbar area to aspirate bone marrow and countless, countless blood draws. My mom, my mom was my comfort and my voice when I was too tired to speak for myself, my sister-in-law, my funny bone, and my ally. I had a radical vulvectomy just a few days after my 30th birthday. They took 75% of what was left of my vulva uh, to remove some stage three and potentially stage four cancer cells. And when I say cancer cells, I mean cancer metropolises. (laughs) My whole family Uh, made plans to be there for my transplant. Five weeks after my vulvectomy, I was scheduled to lose all my personal bone marrow and gain my brother's. So everybody was planning to be there. My mom and her partner, my brothers, their ladies, my dad, my five-year-old nephew, and Ross. The night before I was supposed to start the chemo that would kill all my bone marrow, I got a phone call from him as I'm sorting out the 32 pills I was going to have to take the next day. I was kind of distracted, but I could hear this waver in his voice. You know, he was very anxious, very upset about something. And I tried to keep cool, tried not to trigger him into freaking out. But unfortunately, he misunderstood something that I said to him and just started shouting at me as easy as breathing. And I'm trying to do that thing that never actually works, but they tell you to do where you say, I'm sorry, but I can't understand what you're saying to me when you're shouting. Please calm down so we can have a conversation about this. This has the opposite effect, by the way. I don't recommend ever trying this because he flipped out and he's shouting more and now it's unintelligible and I don't know what's even going on and I'm just holding my phone out like this and looking at my mom like... And my mom's going, hang up the phone! Hang up the phone! So I do. And I don't hear from him the rest of the night and I'm glad because I can't really deal with those shenanigans while I'm filling up on pills for dinner. The next morning, I'm sitting in the exam room waiting to take my very first dose of busulfan to kill all my bone marrow, a process that over the next few days would feel a whole lot like Dumbledore trying to drink all that poison to get to the Horcrux. Thank you, Harry Potter fan. (laughs) So I get an email as we're sitting there, and I think, 
oh, wow, it's from Ross. That's so nice of him to email me and apologize. He knows that I'm starting this chemo and nice of him to humble himself a little bit and be concerned. Oh, no. This was four long paragraphs outlining all the ways I am a horrible and selfish person for milking my cancer for attention. My blood, my blood pressure at that point skyrocketed to a near fatal level considering all the medications I was on and my doctor was alarmed. He prescribed me radio silence, insisted that I stop speaking to this person for a while until my physical situation settled down. Now, of course, I wasn't going to be the one to tell him this because I was just going to get sucked into another one of these insane conversations where I get yelled at and end up being confused and crying a lot. So I let my mom send him a text message, letting him know that his stress not could but would kill me. This had the opposite from desired effect. My phone started blowing up with phone calls and text messages from him insisting that I call him and explain this to him. So I had to turn my phone off and miss a lot of really nice messages from friends and family members concerned about my well-being. My older brother tried to have a man-to-man conversation with him in in person because they were still down in Portland and hadn't headed up yet, but that was not successful. My younger brother threatened to kick his ass, which I think if he wasn't working for the federal government at the time, he probably would have done, but it was my mom's partner calling him and berating him to the point that he cried that made him stop calling me. So I wrote him a Dear John letter, and that was that. My mom stepped in as my primary caregiver, moving her whole life two hours north of where she was living so she could stay with me in Seattle in patient housing and sit with me in the hospital, take care of me in case of emergency. My older brother and sister-in-law would come up on the occasional weekend to give her a break so she could go home and tend to the goats and the dogs and the cats and the fish and her partner and recharge and take care of herself. They took me to Bainbridge Island, and we had a blast. My older brother would help me figure out this film camera that I had, and we would go on photography field trips around Seattle. He took a lot of pictures of me with a camera to my face and my bald head shining gloriously in the sun. My sister-in-law was pregnant with my niece at the time, and when I was on prednisone and she was getting pretty pregnant... Our mood swings, nausea, and hunger cravings lined up perfectly. So we'd camp out on the fold-out couch in the living room of my patient housing apartment, pop complimentary Zofran right next to each other. We were on the same dose. And stuffed our faces with Pop-Tarts and Nutter Butters. It was amazing. My mom, though... My mom sat countless hours with me in waiting rooms, emergency rooms, procedure rooms, recovery rooms, and the living room of our tiny one-bedroom patient apartment. She endured a lot of Gilmore Girls. She helped me yell at the construction workers across the street when they would start jackhammering at 6 o'clock in the morning. She drove me to ballet once a week so that I could get some exercise that felt normal for once, away from the hospital. She listened to me rant and rave and cry when prednisone mood swings were so dark. I just wanted to punch myself in the teeth so I didn't have to hear myself talking anymore. We joked and we laughed and we cried. 
We ate a lot of chicken tortilla soup and just the best cookies I've ever had. I witnessed my mom's strength and vulnerability as she guarded me against infection, loneliness, and low self-esteem. And when I thought that I would try to be friends with Ross out of guilt, my mom and my family circled the wagons and made sure that I felt loved and cared for so I wouldn't succumb to that urge. Since my transplant, I've looked to my family for encouragement and humor when things get tough in this new life as a cancer survivor. Their love and belief in me puts wind in my sails that I didn't even know that I had been missing. They have witnessed my absolute rashy-faced, grouchy, incontinent, confused worst and seen only the joy and tenacity that makes up the core of my being. They put so much love into me when my bones were hollow and my blood didn't work that it is ingrained in me flows through my veins, and I carry it everywhere. Without my family, I wouldn't be alive. If I wasn't alive, I wouldn't have met Neil. September of 2014, I started dating this guy who is just too amazing. He is strength and kindness personified. He is passionate and tender, intelligent, hardworking, and incredibly artistically talented. He insists that I recognize my own worth and every day inspires me to push myself as an artist. In fact, when I lost the first job that I had post-cancer because I was not post-cancer enough to do the job that I was trying to do, he encouraged me to take that time to really engage in an art practice in a way that I had never had the time or the energy to do and it changed my life. In December, he had this horrible gut infection, and we ended up spending three days in the hospital together. I used my professional patient magic to help him figure out the best way to be comfortable in a, hotel or a hospital room. We snuggled up in his hospital bed and watched the ball drop on New Year's Eve while eating jello and giggling. We can have fun everywhere. He is my best friend and my ultimate teammate. I'm certain that cancer scoured my life of bullshit, both extraneous and internal. And it left me with the understanding that love is not just a feeling. Love is a constellation of behaviors that we engage in to make sure the people around us know that we care about them. Because of this idea, I'm able to have a wonderful relationship with my family, an amazing relationship, most healthy relationship with the most amazing man I've ever met. Together, he and I show up, love big, and make art. We've been engaged since October 9th of this year. Thank you. Once again, that was one of the performances from the Notes of Hope Benefit Concert for the HHH Foundation at the Alberta Rose Theatre on November 13th. If you'd like to find out more about the annual Notes of Hope Concert or the HHH Foundation, and to find out how you can donate and help the cause, you can visit notesofhopepdx.org.